I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21 this evening. Before reading God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, what a joy and a privilege it is to gather each Sunday evening and to hear from Your Word. May we always count it a privilege and a delight as we go through this regular routine of gathering and hearing Your Word. May we never take for granted uh, the privilege that is ours and yet the high calling that is laid before us as your called out chosen people. May we delight, may we wonder at the riches of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. John chapter 6 verse 1, after this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, in reading through John's gospel, I find it helpful to keep in mind the purpose for which he wrote this book, a purpose of which he tells us about clearly at the very end in chapter 20 when he says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so everything that John writes is for this purpose of belief. And when you think of belief, don't think of it merely in terms of conversion belief although certainly that is what John has in mind. But think of it 
like this, that the purpose of John's book is belief that transforms the life into worship. Worship of the eternal, living, and reigning Son of God. So that if you come away from John's gospel in your own study or uh, when you are reading it on your own, if you come away with greater worship, greater adoration, wonder and awe and zeal for him, then that means by God's grace, you are listening to John's book and it's having its intended effect upon you. Now, tonight we consider two miraculous events that are connected to one another in a very significant way. Miraculous signs that are reminiscent of God's work in the lives of His covenant children, Israel. When you think of the feeding of the 5,000, of course, what comes to mind is the Lord's provision of manna for the people of Israel. This is made clear in the second half of John chapter 6 that we'll consider together next time. And when Jesus walks on water, what comes to mind is the children of Israel crossing safely through the Red Sea. And these are important things to keep in mind because Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation. And in these two miracles, Jesus shows himself to be the true Israel. And first, as we look at the feeding of the 5,000, let's consider the significance of this sign. That's our first point this evening, the significance of the feeding. Now, this is a miraculous event that is captured for us not only here in John, but in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, other than the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. We find it in Matthew chapter 14. In Mark chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 9. Here we read of this huge crowd of people, 5,000 men, perhaps upward of 2,000 when we, or 20,000 rather, when we include women and children. And this crowd is flocked out to see Jesus because, as we read in verse 2, they have seen him perform amazing signs of healing for the sick. They have listened to his instruction and they are drawn to him. Now, let's think back to the miracles that we've seen already in John's gospel. There was the turning of water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee in chapter 2. There was the healing of the official son in chapter 4. And there was the healing of the invalid by the pool in Jerusalem in chapter 5. And what each of those have in common, among other things, is that they are for only a select few to witness firsthand. But here we have a very public miracle, one in which not only thousands of people see, but of course thousands are beneficiaries, we could say, of this particular miracle. And since it's such a public miracle, I think it's safe to say that Jesus is communicating something very significant about his earthly ministry. In fact, John calls the miracles of Jesus, he calls them signs. Signs, of course, by their very nature, point beyond themselves to something else. So what does this miraculous sign of the feeding of the 5,000 point toward? As we think about what this miraculous sign is teaching us, let's consider, secondly, this evening, the people who are present. The people who are present here with Jesus in John chapter 6. First, there's the crowd. 
Again, it's a crowd that gathers because they have seen the miraculous power of Jesus to heal. Perhaps some of them have been recipients themselves of that healing, or they have had extended family members whom they have brought who have been blessed by this healing power of Jesus. We read in the synoptics that the people come not only because of the healing, but because of the teaching of Jesus, a teaching that's authoritative and clear and powerful. Now, John tells us that the Passover feast is at hand, and so perhaps there is such a large crowd that is gathered here because there are pilgrims who are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's a crowd that Jesus has compassion on because, as Mark says it, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And they show their weakness. They show the fact that they are sheep. They show their frailty in the fact that they have nothing to eat. They have made no provision and no preparations for their own needs. And then there is Philip, who in this particular setting represents the disciples. And Jesus says to Philip what perhaps they are all thinking, where are we going to get enough food for all of these people to eat? And we'll see in a moment how Jesus shows himself to be a greater than Moses But this question that Jesus asks Philip here in verse 5, where are we going to get food? It really echoes Moses' question in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13. It's there in that particular narrative that the children of Israel are clamoring for food. They are desirous of meat. And Moses is absolutely overwhelmed with this request. And he goes to God and he says, where am I going to get enough food for these people? They are making unreasonable demands of me. I cannot carry this burden alone. It is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, Moses says to God, then kill me now. And so while Moses and Jesus ask the same question, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? There's, of course, a huge difference between these two men. The difference with Jesus is that he is in complete control. He has the ability to provide. He does not ask this question in a demanding fashion toward his heavenly father, but Jesus asks this question of Philip in order to draw out his heart and what's going on in his mind. And Philip responds, I have no idea. Even if we could find a place that had enough food in store to put something together for all of these people to eat, Even then, where would we get the money to pay for something like that? I could work for the next six months, and that would provide only enough for all of these people to have just a bite of food. And perhaps in Philip's comment, we're meant to hear the same complaint of Moses. It's not our responsibility. It's impossible to feed them. The needs of the people are far too great. We read in the synoptics that the disciples say to Jesus, send them away. Send them away to find food somewhere else. Perhaps there's this anticipation that if the people do not eat, they will become more restless and more demanding, more hostile, and so we better send them away now. From a human perspective, this is truly an impossible task. But Jesus does not ask Philip this question because he doesn't know what to do. Jesus doesn't ask Philip this question because he needs Philip's amazing insight. In fact, the text tells us clearly that Jesus knows what he's going to do already. But he says this in order to test Philip, really to test the disciples. We could say to test us as well. 
that in this question, we might see exposed mankind's complete inability, our utter helplessness, our utter dependence, that we might see the impossibility of such a task to provide that which we desperately need. We are the ones who are spiritually impoverished. We are at all times dependent people, a needy people. And even more than that, we are a wicked and rebellious people, and we need a substitute. We need someone who will stand in our place and provide that which we lack. It is impossible for them to feed what really needs to be fed. It is impossible for them to satisfy what really needs to be quenched. They cannot provide on a human plane even one small meal, let alone can they meet the deepest of needs. Because this really isn't about bread and fish. It's about their helplessness, their inability, their inadequacy on the one hand versus the sufficiency of Jesus alone to heal, to nourish, to satisfy, to feed our souls, to restore us to God. And so Jesus is pushing the disciples to see their inability so that in the end they might see the splendor of who he is. Only by seeing our own inadequacy will we understand the nature of grace. Because it's as we are pushed to the very end of ourselves that Jesus then provides. So there's the crowd, and then there is Philip, and there is also in this narrative we read of Andrew and the boy. Andrew comes along and he says, here's this boy who has a small lunch. Now Andrew, of course, is not suggesting that we take this small lunch and divide it into thousands of tiny little pieces so that everybody can have a little taste. But he's pointing out the same thing that Philip understands, and that is the absolute impossibility of providing for the needs of these people. Andrew is saying, look, Jesus, I've already asked around, and this is all I could find, but what good is it for so many You kind of get the picture from the way that this narrative unfolds that Jesus is really letting the disciples sort of sweat here a little bit. And this, you see, is the test that Jesus is laying out before Philip, before Andrew, and before the rest of us as well. You need to sort of camp out here for a while and see what your need is all about and see your inability to meet that need. Now, liberal scholars at this point will say that what you have here is nothing more than the miracle of sharing. Apparently, we're such self-absorbed people that even sharing is a miracle. They will say that there was really enough food amongst the crowd themselves. They were just hoarding it, perhaps sticking it in their pockets or holding it themselves in their own bags. They saw others who had needs, but they had enough for themselves. But when this little boy stepped forward and offered his meal He encouraged the rest of the crowd to do the same. They were convicted and compelled to share what they had with others. And so what they will say is that the real lesson is sort of a moral or ethical breakthrough. It was the example of Jesus' love that inspired others. It's a miracle of generosity. So I I suppose then the lesson is just to go down and give some food to the local food bank. But the reality is... 
The miraculous is critical to Jesus' identity. Without the supernatural work of Christ in the Gospels, we have a different gospel altogether. We simply have a moralistic gospel that makes you feel good about yourself for a few moments as I sacrifice some unwanted cans from my own pantry down to the food pantry. And so it is critical for the Christian faith that we acknowledge the text to be what it is, a public display of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so what is it really that Jesus is claiming about himself? Well, if we put chapter 6 in the context of John's gospel, it was at the end of chapter 5 that Jesus made this claim. You can see it there in verse 47, that if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, what did Jesus, or what did Moses rather, write of Jesus? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read that an even greater prophet will come, a greater than Moses. And when that greater prophet comes, you are to listen to him. And that gets us to our third point this evening, and that is that Jesus shows us in many ways that he is a greater than Moses. Well, how does he show himself to be greater than Moses? Well, first, there's the location of the miracle. John is the only one of the gospel writers in recording this narrative who tells us in verse 3 that Jesus went up to the mountain with his disciples. It was Moses, of course, who ascended Mount Sinai to receive the word of the Lord. As Moses went up the mountain, the Lord spoke to him and he delivered that word to the people, to the children of Israel. But here it is Jesus himself who ascends the mountain, not to receive the word of the Lord, but to speak the word of the Lord to his followers and to the crowd that gathers around him. For he is the word, speaking in such an authoritative fashion. And second, Jesus is a greater than Moses in the fact that the Passover meal is at hand. We read that in verse 4. Of course, the Passover was that covenantal meal that was instituted by God, given to his people on the night of their release from slavery. As the blood of the substitutionary lamb was placed upon the doorposts, the people of God were spared the judgment of the Lord. And so by mentioning the coming Passover, Jesus is, or John rather, is not simply indicating the time of year in which this miracle occurs, but he's indicating that Jesus is the Passover lamb that he is the means by which we have peace and life with the Lord God. And third, Jesus is the greater than Moses in the orderly arrangement of the crowd. In verse 10, Jesus tells the disciples to have everyone sit down in groups. Mark's account in chapter 6 of Mark, he tells us that Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50 and 100s. And this orderly division of the people reminds us of the way in which Moses ordered the people into groups by tribe and clan and family in order to prepare them for departure from Egypt and to travel throughout those years of wilderness wandering. And when the children of Israel would stop and when they would set up camp, they would arrange themselves in a cross-like fashion around the tabernacle with the tabernacle in the very center of their midst. And now, here is Jesus, the true temple of the Lord, the one who has tabernacled among their very midst, as John says in his prologue. 
And now the true tabernacle stands here among this crowd of thousands in an orderly fashion, preparing to provide for their needs. And fourth, Jesus is a greater than Moses in the grassy surroundings. Moses led the people in the barren wilderness. John points out in verse 10 that there is much grass in the place. And he's not telling us that just because he is an eyewitness to these events. But also, I think when we envision green grass, we are to see a tranquil, peaceful scene in which Jesus, as Messiah, provides for the needs of the people in abundance. We might think of Psalm chapter 23, in which the Lord God leads his people into green pastures of peace and rest. Or later in John's gospel in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, I am the door, and it is through that door, through me, that you are saved. It is through me that you find pasture and have life in abundance. You see, to fellowship with the Lord in peace, to fellowship with Him in such an intimate manner is possible because of the provision of the Lord Jesus. And fifth, Jesus is the greater than Moses as He takes a small amount of food and multiplies it for many. Jesus takes five small barley loaves, which would be more like large crackers, and two small fish about the size of sardines. A sort of a dried fish that they would use, using a very small amount of food to feed the multitude. Of course, it's under the leadership of Moses that the Lord provides manna from heaven. But Moses himself is not the source of that provision, is he? It's the Lord who provides that food. But Jesus has the power and authority within his divine nature. And while he pauses here to give thanks to his heavenly Father for this provision, it is Jesus himself who multiplies the food to feed the thousands. Perhaps in Andrew's statement earlier, he is expressing his own skepticism when he speaks to Jesus. Here is this small amount of food from this boy, but but how ridiculous to presume that this bit could do us any good at all. How many today have a similar reaction to the work of Christ upon the cross? How foolish to believe that the death of one could atone for the sins of the world. And finally, Jesus is greater than Moses in the 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. They have had their fill. They find satisfaction in the provision of Christ Jesus, and the leftover fragments are gathered food in abundance. You'll recall when the manna was provided for the children of Israel, they were to take only enough for that particular day. They were not to gather in abundance, but only for the needs day by day. Jesus provides even more. And in these 12 basketfuls, we are to think of the 12 nations of Israel, that the Lord Jesus himself is creating a new covenant community a new called-out people who find their identity in Him, a people who are called out of bondage into the freedom of Christ Jesus, a people who are called out of darkness into the light of life. Life is found in Him alone. Life is found by seeking His grace and His forgiveness. The old order has passed away. Behold, all things are new in Christ Jesus.
You see, if your faith is in him, then you are part of this new covenant community. If you see his provision for your greatest of needs, if you understand that in him alone you find life, then you too are a recipient of this blessing that comes to the new covenant community. So whether the crossing of the Red Sea, whether the provision of food in the wilderness, or the institution of the Passover celebration, all of these things of old are shadows pointing to this reality, to Jesus himself. Those things were provisional, but Jesus is the substance He is the permanent reality, and He is creating a new covenant community, a new kingdom made up of those whose faith is in Him. And then notice that we see the reaction of the crowd in verses 14 and 15. The people see the sign, they are amazed at the power of Jesus, and they confess, indeed, this is the prophet of whom Moses spoke. But Jesus knows their motive. He knows that they want to make him king. You know, what more could you possibly want in a king? You have one who teaches authoritatively. You have one who can heal you when you are sick or when you get injured. You have one who can provide food for you. Everything that you need is here. This is where we can remain perhaps indefinitely. If Jesus will not lead us in the way in which we want, then perhaps all he needs is a little push to see that He is the one to lead us from oppression. And see, they are only thinking in terms of political and social freedom. They want their identity as a nation restored. And if Jesus is not agreeable to that agenda, then they will force Him to do what they want Him to do. But of course, this is not the purpose for which Jesus comes. And He will not cave to their agenda simply to keep a crowd together simply to keep the enthusiasm moving. But He has come as a substitute for sinners. He has come to redeem and restore mankind. He has come for a much larger and deeper issue than national restoration. But He has come to lay down His life as a ransom for many. Dr. Edmund Clowney put it like this, He would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment but to receive the spear thrust into his side and to bear the judgment that we deserve. Now let's look for just a few moments at verses 16 through 21 where Jesus walks upon the water and calms the storm. In verse 16, we read that the darkness sets upon as this day comes to an end. And it's darkness that precedes the miracle on the water just as the darkness in the land of Egypt precedes the deliverance of God's people as he led them from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, the storms of the sea are a frightening thing, especially here on the Sea of Galilee where you know that storms can come up in a moment and there is great destructive power in such storms. In many ways, a storm represents our weakness against the created order. And it's a display of God's power and might. And while Jesus will soon pass through the waters of judgment for our sakes as he goes to the cross, at this particular point, 
Jesus is displaying his holy nature and his power before his disciples as they see their rabbi transcend the destructive power of the storm. Now, it would have been a frightening thing to be out on the sea in the midst of this storm, but even more frightening, as you can imagine, to see someone walking toward you upon the water. And again, there are those who attempt to dismiss this miracle and say that it's nothing more than the disciples traveling along the shoreline and seeing Jesus walk upon the shore. Perhaps it was the way that the moonlight shined upon him or the early morning dawn that led them to believe that this was a ghost. Well, again, this is all nonsense. These are rational men. These are fishermen who are comfortable in this setting, even with a storm, which might create fear. There's a sense in which this is not a surprise to them. But Jesus coming to them upon the sea was what created the fear. Again, as we take the text at face value, we see that they are three or four miles on their journey across the sea. And they see one who is holy walking toward them, one who is from above, one who is beyond this world and yet in this world. And then as he approaches them, he says in a loving and tender manner, it is I, do not be afraid. This is the same thing that Jesus said to the disciples as we heard from our text this morning from Luke chapter 5 when they pulled in that large haul of fish. Now, there's a sense in which in the presence of the Holy One, there should be fear because we are defiled. We are rebellious. We are unclean. And in the presence of the Holy One, that uncleanliness becomes even more evident. But here, Jesus draws near, not in condemnation or judgment, but He draws near in order to comfort them, in order to bring them safely to their destination. It is His presence with them that leads to peace and safety and stability. And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord God tells His people quite frequently, do not fear. Genesis 26, verse 24, the Lord appears to Isaac and tells him, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, when the children of Israel were afraid to go into the land of Canaan and take possession of it, they are told, do not fear, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord will be with you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when you go out to battle and you go to fight the surrounding nations, and it appears as though they are stronger than you, do not fear, for I, the Lord, will be with you. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did you notice a common thread that's running through all of those verses? It's not simply do not fear, but do not fear because the Lord is with you. Now, if we are told over and again that we are not to be afraid, well, that's because we need to hear it, because we are a people who fear. At times, it can feel as though we are being swamped by the fears of this life, fears when we think of the uncertainty of the days ahead, fears when we wonder what God could possibly be doing in the midst of a trial, 
that might come in our lives. Fear when we think about our children growing up in the world around us. Now, who possibly has the ability to tell you, do not fear? You could have a friend or a parent or a spouse even who comes to you and tells you, stop being afraid. Stop being so worried. Stop freaking out. But they really don't have any power to stand behind those words. They might be well-intentioned words, but ultimately they're vain words, empty words, because they lack that ability to provide certainty. But Jesus, however, has the ability to tell you not to fear because he has power over all things. He controls your future. He controls your circumstances. He has a plan and a purpose for you that you can trust in him. Do not fear, not only because he is in control, but do not fear because there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And then he gives evidence to the disciples of how they can and ought to trust in him as he comes into their very midst and brings them safely to their destination. He alone has the power and authority and ability to bring us safely home to our eternal destination. He will work persevering grace. He will help us through the trials and tribulations of this life. He will finish the work that He has begun in us. Do not fear because of who He is. Do not fear because He is with you as the great and sovereign Lord of life over all of life. And then we read in verse 21 that when the disciples saw that it was Jesus, and when he spoke these words of comfort to them, they were glad to take him into the boat. Are you glad to take Jesus into the very center of your own life? Are you glad to have him there with you? Not only watching over you, not only comforting you, but also bringing conviction in your life when necessary. Or in times like that, would you prefer that he remain outside of the boat? Sort of taking care of my problems from a distance. I know that he's there. I know that he can draw on him when I need. But instead, you see your need for him. And are you glad to have him in the very center of your life? See, Jesus is the king. He is creating a new covenant community. A called out people who find their identity in him. But as he tells Pilate in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. This is the purpose for which I have come into this world. That if you are of the truth, you will listen to my voice. And this is what we need as God's people, isn't it? To know who we are as those who have been called out of darkness into life. And to also know where we are, that we have been redeemed from slavery and from captivity, but yet we are a pilgrim people along the way, not yet having reached our eternal home. We are not in Egypt, but we're not yet in the land of promise. We are in the wilderness, feeding upon Christ, living under his kingly rule, living as citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Someone has said, it is not wearisome to follow Jesus. You can certainly expect struggles in the Christian life. If you don't, you would be naive. But if it seems wearying to you to be a Christian, 
then look to his power. Look to his compassion. Jesus transforms the desert into a place of rest, refreshment, and life. What a difference it makes that Jesus is with us. Commune with him. Delight in him. Eat and be satisfied. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, what comfort is ours to know that you are the sovereign Lord who rules and who reigns over all, who has great purpose in all things, who has sent the eternal Son to be an atoning sacrifice for sins. And we see here in this amazing miracle the provision of our Savior to meet our needs in abundance, to lay down his life in such a sufficient manner that all who look to you might find such freedom in peace and life with you. What comfort to know that we have a Lord who is always with us, providing for our needs, comforting us in times of hardship, even convicting us when we need such sight of sin that we lack on our own. May we delight in a Savior, never tire of worshiping Him. And it's in the name of this Savior that we pray. Amen.